Hey, to all the real estate professionals out there, I want to let you know The Buyer's Mind is sponsored by Homebridge Financial. Homebridge loan officers are experts in new home financing, and they bring sales ideas and strategies and market intelligence and programs that will help sell homes. To learn more about that, go to builder.homebridge.com. Homebridge Financial, home financing made easy. The word of the day is hippocampus. Our second word of the day is amygdala. What do these two words have to do with a buying decision? Let's find out on today's episode of The Buyer's Mind. Welcome to The Buyer's Mind, where we take a closer look deep inside your customer's decision-making mechanism to reverse engineer the perfect sales presentation. Now, please welcome your host, Jeff Shaw. Welcome, everyone, once again to another episode of The Buyer is Mine, the podcast where we really want to know what's going on inside the brain of people who are thinking about making a purchase decision. We have long held that when we understand the way that buyers buy, we can reverse engineer our sales presentation to make it easy for them to do just that. I am your host, Jeff Shore, joined as always by our show producer, uh, Paul Murphy. And uh, we're going to talk today about the the way that the brain works. We're, we're going to look at this uh, from the, the perspective of the emotional versus the logical brain, but we're going to get into the science a little bit. And uh, Murph, when I say hippocampus or amygdala, uh, what do you think of? Are those characters in Star Wars? Because that's where I'm going. I... <laughs> <laughs> I know. I don't know who names these things. I really, really don't. But uh, they actually work together, as we'll as 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 we'll see here uh, momentarily. Uh, but you know, Murph, when we look at this idea of how memory and emotion fits together, and there's no question about it, it, it does. Uh, we, we we if you remember back uh, several months ago, we had Dr. John Medina on for his second time on the podcast, and he said something that I've quoted many, many times that. Uh, Emotion serves as a post-it note that sits on top of an experience and turns it into a memory. Do you remember that, Murph? I do. It's a great quote. And I think it's telling from the perspective that when we think back on those things, that we remember. So, Murph, really quickly, anything at all that you remember from your high school days? Go. Oh, uh, wow. So there was a girl in the hallway who. Uh, ah, there it is. Uh, yeah. Who uh, <laughs> yeah, I thought was cute, but uh, she made a terrible remark yeah. to me and I did something stupid back and now I'm hideously embarrassed. So. <laughs> <laughs> but but this is a really good point, because when we can look at it, we can say all of those moments in our life where, you know, we hit the replay button, we go, oh, did I really do that or did I really say that or whatever it happens to be? What happened in those moments? Well, again, go back to what Dr. John Medina says, that emotion serves as a post-it note that sits on top of an experience and turns it into a memory. Uh, you wouldn't have remembered that. You walk down that hallway hundreds, thousands of times, and you don't remember them because there wasn't the emotion. But when there is the profound emotion, that's what gets it to stick. And we're going to get into that today because whether it's on the negative side, for example, the fact that we're recording this podcast at the time where we were all sheltering in place because of the coronavirus or on the positive side, when you think about your first kiss, when you think about, you know, the birth of a child or when your team won the big championship game, whatever it happens to be, those emotions really work our 
brains and they control our brains. And so if we can look at it, we can ask ourselves the question, how does our customer deal with this? Both on the negative side, that would be fear. And on the positive side, that would be joy. If we can understand that, it'll make a huge difference. And that's why we wanted to have Dr. Terry Wu on the program. I think you're going to love this conversation with Terry Wu. Well, we're thrilled to have on the podcast, uh, Dr. Terry Wu, just a really, really interesting uh, and very, very brilliant thinker in the area of neuromarketing. His website is neuromarketingservices.com. We'll put that in the show notes so that you can look it up. Uh, First ran into Terry Wu, if you will, as uh, having watched his TED Talk on uh, the new science of consumer decisions. Well worth watching. Very, very interesting stuff. Uh, I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. Terry, welcome to The Buyer's Mind. Thank you very much, Jeff. Uh, thank you for having me here on the show. It's a pleasure. Uh, we're, we're talking right now at a really, really interesting time. We're going to get into the core topic here about decision making, which is your expertise. But we are at the time of this recording, we're actually still sheltering in place uh, as, as part of the, the uh, uh, coronavirus uh, pandemic that's going on out there. And so uh, maybe a little bit later on in the recording, we'll talk about uh, the future of uh, behavior. But right now, uh, I, I want to just lead off by saying you, you've written that our decisions, the decisions that we make are emotionally based, that they're made intuitively. So right now we've got people who might be sheltering in place at the time of this recording, but they still need a new home or they still need a car or they still need, you know, something that's out there and they're in a stressful situation. So let's lead off here with a little bit about how stress uh, affects decision making and how that plays into our emotion. Do we rely then more on emotion or less on emotion? Um, Jeff, that's a, great, that's a great question. I think, um, you know, we are experiencing this unprecedented crisis. Um, I think, you know, we're under a lot of stress. We hear the bad news from every angle. Um, I think the stress is going to really have a huge impact on our emotional state. And it's going to have a huge impact on our decision making. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, let's look at this hoarding behavior. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of a good example of a irrational decisions. You know, I'm talking about the you know general hoarders. So what causes hoarding? It's stress. Mm-hmm. You know, many people when they start, very often these hoarders start out buying things, collecting things, and not letting go of things because they experience some traumatic you know, events or things in their lives can be a terrible breakup, can be um, a loss of a loved one, or can be a job loss, or can be the diagnosis of a very serious illness. So guess what they start doing? They start buying things, they start collecting things. It's simply because they develop emotional attachment to the things they have. Hmm. And this is kind of the hoarding behavior. But, you know, starting a few weeks ago, we saw people hoarding all sorts of things. Yeah. On the top of the list was a toilet paper. Right. This is a very rational decision. You know, what can toilet paper do, you know, for the coronavirus? When we were bombarded with bad news, the news coming out from all angles 24-7, and people are scared. They feel like they're losing control. So buying toilet paper gives them a sense of having some control, you know, in this uncontrollable situation. So we're going to see more irrational decisions, you know, because of the stress and people are going to make more emotional decisions. You know, it's interesting. I was talking to a client of mine. They are a home building company here. And and many of the home builders, they haven't seen a significant drop off in the sale of new homes. 
I find that really interesting at a time when people are in many states are not even allowed to go into a sales office. I would say the majority of states, that's the case. And yet people are still buying. I, I would have argued initially that if you are in this time of panic and pandemic and crisis and bad news all of the time, that it would have shut down buying behavior. And yet that has not proven to be the case. Uh, that the, that's a pretty big decision to make at a time when there is a lot of negative news out there. What do you suppose is happening uh, in the mind of people who are facing this just like everybody else is, but are still pr proceeding forward with the purchase decision. Um, Jeff, I actually, I totally agree with you. I have seen the same thing um, with some of my clients as well. Mm -hmm. One of my clients, uh, they install swimming pools. So their sales actually are higher than last year, what they saw. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And the thing is, you know, but I think there is a shift in, in what people spend on. You know, a lot of people, you know, they, they, they're stuck at home. They think they're going to stuck at home for a long time. I may well, might as well, you know, make my home better, make me feel more comfortable. So I'm going to spend more money on home improvement. I have another. So, you know, that's why, you know, they never, they have not stopped buying pools, which is a very expensive purchase. Mm -hmm. And I have another client, they install fences because they see the same thing. We're not traveling to France. We're not traveling to Europe anymore. And then might as well, you know, fence off our backyard. And then so I keep my kids, my, my pets uh, safe. So mm -hmm. I think there may be a shift in what we spend, what we buy on. And the other thing, Jeff, I think there could be a shift of mentality because, you know, with this coronavirus, people are scared. This thing can hit anybody. Anybody can, you know, the, consequence, the ultimate consequence is, you know, people can die from this. Mm -hmm. So this actually kind of maybe raised, you know, touched on people's, you know, their sensitivity about their own mortality. They may think, hey, you know, if I, there's a good chance I'm going to die from this, might as well, you know, why save the money? Why not just spend right. the money, you know, buy the things mm -hmm. I can enjoy? But that too, largely emotional decision, a very base exactly. level emotion that we're dealing with right there. Yeah. Yeah. Let's let's talk about the connection between emotion and memory. You've written about this. Uh, when I think about what we know about memory, there is so much. Well, I think you would probably agree with me. There's a whole lot more that we don't know about how memory works. So what we do know, we know that mm -hmm. different memories are stored at different parts of the brain. But there's no question about it. There are two key physiological factors at play that is in the way that the hippocampus and the amygdala interact together can you talk a little bit about the about the connection of those two what they are and how they work together to sort of control the emotional brain sure um great question you know when we're in the heightened emotional state we tend to memorize things you remember things more clearly with more clarity and also for a much longer time there's there's like a biological biological basis for that so so, so let me just make sure that we're on the same page here so if you've ever been in a car accident uh, it mm -hmm. might have transpired in all of about three or four seconds of actual trauma, but you remember mm -hmm. every detail as if it was a 20 minute process. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. I just want to make so, sure we're on the same page here. Yeah. Right. So there, so why, why is that the case? You know, there are two brain structures that are really um, very closely involved in memory and emotion. 
So the structure you talked about hippocampus, you know, we have been studying hippocampus for probably the last, very extensively for the last 60 or 50 years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, billions probably dollars have been, you know, invested, you know, invested in studying this tiny structure. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you a story. Um, this actually in the 1980s, what caught people, what caught scientists' attention was, um, was from this patient. So Henry had, you know, when he was very young, he had this uncontrollable epilepsy. So in his 20s, um, the doctor decided they have to do a brain surgery to remove parts of his brain to control his seizures. So during the brain surgery, his hippocampus was removed. So came coming out of the surgery, he was a kind of like normal person. You know, his IQ number even went up a few, few, uh, few points. Mm-hmm. But what really was striking to the doctor was he could not remember anything. He ate his breakfast, and then 10 minutes later, he forgot his, he ate his breakfast. He ate his breakfast again. Mm-hmm. So from this extreme case, we learned that hippocampus is a very crucial structure in learning and memory. And so, you know, Henry, he was kind of on the one side of the spectrum. He's a kind of extreme case. It shows what happens when you lose hippocampus. But so let's look at another case, which is kind of a people with extraordinary memory. What happens to their hippocampus? Mm-hmm. So if you look at the taxi drivers in London, these people, they have to get training, get their tra- get trained for four years. And they need to pass very, some very tough exams to get licensed to become a taxi driver in London. Mm-hmm. They need to memorize all the street names and then they need to learn how to navigate, you know, inside London. So there's a study that actually look at the hippocampus size of taxi drivers in London. What they found out, the size of a hippocampus is much larger than the size of a hippocampus of regular people. Yeah. So this is another example, you know, say, you know, people with extraordinary memory, their memory, their, their hippocampus size grows larger. But Jeff, the other thing is hippocampus is one integral part of the emotional brain. So why is that? Why is that case? Because emotions is tied to what we remember. When when you look at this, it, it is uh, uh, it, the 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 structure of the brain together. When we put mm-hmm. these things together, you've got the hippocampus, which is that memory center. You've mm-hmm. got the amygdala, which is the emotion center. How mm-hmm. closely connected are they? They're only one synapse away. That mm-hmm. means something highly emotional going to trigger the memory, make the memory much more clear and last a lot longer. They're only one synapse away. And then when we have an experience, then what happens is they, they literally merge, they grow together, right? We, we, we build yes. those synapses, the, the, the neurons of fire more quickly, more accurately between one and the other. And I think this describes why if I, if I ask you to tell me about your last vacation, you're not going to tell me about all of the details. You're going to tell me about the emotions. Exactly. So, you know, Jeff, one thing is, you know, we always know, you know, we remember a lot of those emotional events in our lives. Mm-hmm. You know, our first kiss, you know, the first time we held, a, you know, a child and what happened, you know, where we were on 9-11 and the passing of the loved person in our lives. Mm-hmm. So these highly emotionally charged events, we remember with much higher clarity and we remember for the much longer time. Mm-hmm. So the emotions and, you know, and memories are cl- so closely connected simply because, you know, structurally, amygdala is only one synapse away from hippocampus. Would, would that describe or explain why we are so drawn to nostalgia and why nostalgia 
might actually be a very powerful influencing factor in a decision that we're going to make. And if we can connect it to a happy time, a happy moment, whatever that that happens to be, uh, is there a mm-hmm. connection there in your opinion? Yes, exactly. You know, again, again, you know, nostalgia, that's kind of like, a, you know, reminds of the emotion that we have, the emotion triggered our memory and the memory, you know, and enhance our emotional state. And then we make decisions based on our emotions. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that it's let's uh, transition into that now, because people that are listening to this podcast, uh, you know, no question about it. They're going to be uh, they're they're influence professionals. They are thinking uh, in terms of of how people make uh, purchase decisions. And, you know, as a consumer, we like to think that we are extremely um, rational in all our decisions. We weigh things out. We can make a list of the reasons why I should or should not purchase something. But the reality is that here comes our emotion. It's basically going to rule the day. Is that an accurate statement? Yes. I think a lot of the sales people um, know this. And also, I, live, I listen to many of your uh, previous podcast episodes. I think this theme had been kind of re- repeated many times. You know, consumers normally, you know, make their decisions emotionally and they try to justify them rationally, mm-hmm. um, you know, kind of reverse process. But emotions kind of lives under the cerebral cortex. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the emotional brain, the limbic system, which we call is under the cerebral cortex. The cerebral cortex is what, you know, is the is a part of the brain that responsible for having our self-awareness. Unless, you know, an emotion kind of a percolate or bubble up to the to the higher level, we feel like we're in a rage, you know, we're really happy or, you know, we're sad or so we unless you kind of really re- cross that threshold, we are actually very often we're not aware of the emotion we have we're experiencing. That emotion exactly. is ever present, right? It's there all the time. Exactly. It's just that it, it has to increase. It's like there's a volume knob on it to where I can finally hear it, if you will, uh, at mm-hmm. which point it starts to uh, uh, pop up into my rational uh, cognitive brain. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay, got right. it, got it. So, so that emotion then is uh, the, the first order of business. Then I, I'm I'm going to look at it and I'm going to say, you know, I will follow the emotion even though I don't know that I'm following the emotion. And that leads us to the whole study of cognitive biases. And I know mm-hmm. that there are behavioral economists, neuroscientists have identified about 200 of those different cognitive biases that often cause people to behave irrationally. Let's talk about some of the more prominent cognitive biases that uh, that, that sometimes uh, cause us to do things that we don't even know we're doing. I'll give you a really interesting um, study. Um, this is kind of why the brain is actually very often is not very good at estimating threats and danger. So this is how this study is done. Um, you gather a group of people, you ask them and say, hey, there is a 1% chance you're going to get an electric, painful electric shock. How much are you willing to pay to avoid this 1% chance of getting the electric shock? You know, on average, they're saying, I'm going to pay for $7. And then, okay, another, you get another group of volunteers say, hey, now you have a chance of a 99% of a chance getting a painful electric shock. So you were thinking, you know, rationally, you know, 1% chance we're going to pay $7 and then, mm-hmm. you know, almost like 100% chance we're going to probably increase the chance, increase the amount of we want to pay maybe by 100 times. But guess what? The 99% chance people say, I'm going to pay about $10. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So because all they really it, hear and feel is electric shock. They they, yes. they don't think about the the rational side of the equation of what the percentage is. All I know is I could get shocked, and that's bad. Exactly. You know. Mm-hmm. So when we're the brain is very bad at you know when we have the emotions overwhelming us, the the brain is very bad at you know doing the do the precise calculation. So you know, yeah, one percent chance is actually the same as ninety nine percent chance. And then another bias, you know, I like to share with this, this is called a bandwagon bias. Mm-hmm. So what bandwagon bias is, we see other people doing certain things. We see, we think, yeah, we should do this thing too. I give you kind of an um, example. This example I, I, I used in my TED talk was, you know, about, this is like in 1975. So a group of psychologists did this study. So they asked a group of volunteers to rate quality and price of cookies from two different jars. Mm-hmm. One jar had 10 cookies. The other one had only two. So the volunteers were told the cookies in the jar with only two left were in high demand and in short supply. So it wasn't, it's not really surprising that those cookies were rated as higher in quality and price. Mm-hmm. But what, because you know, the volunteers believed you know, more, more people wanted them. But what was surprising was that all the cookies used in the study were identical. So we tend to believe if something's wanted by more people, it must be good and valuable. Mm-hmm. So you think about why is that the case? You know, why is my decision, you know, why does my decision have anything to do with somebody else's decision? This is simply because decisions create uncertainty. We feel safer by following decisions made by a crowd. You know, you know, in terms of sales. You know, Jeff, Amazon understands this bias so well. Amazon, this is actually one of the most powerful tools Amazon uses to persuade people to buy. Mm-hmm. So if you go to Amazon, you know, you want to buy, say, a coffee maker or, a, you know, a TV screen. So how does Amazon help you decide? How does Amazon persuade you to make the decision? Can I take a guess at that? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, two left in stock? Yeah, that's one thing. Yeah, great. Mm-hmm. That means that's a scarcity. Uh, so it's, again, that's kind of like more people. That means more people buy it. Anything mm-hmm. else? Uh, well, I would guess, you know, the, I mean, obviously, the, the, at least for me, the ratings have a lot to say about it. There's social proof in what other people are going to yeah. say. Exactly. You know, social proof is a huge, you know, the things, Jeff, when you look at Amazon, uh, anything listed on Amazon, you don't see the price first. You don't see the free shipping first, but you see the ratings first. You see number review first, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. you see numbers of you know um, questions answer first. Then mm-hmm. Amazon shows you know these are the best sellers. You know this is the editor's choice or Amazon's choice. So they all use the kind of social proof. This is kind of bad wagon you know in, influence because we think yeah if everybody's has been you know a lot of people are buying it that must be good so we follow the crowd because of the crowd make us feel safer you know feel safer you know that's emotion let's talk about pricing strategy for a second I, I, last year my wife and i bought a, a a mattress and and in that experience going to different mattress mm-hmm. stores i remember going into one mattress store and every single mm-hmm. mattress in the entire store had a price tag prominently displayed and in mm-hmm. every single case there was a was is right because of course what a yep. shocker they're having a sale at a mattress store right <laughs> so yeah. mm-hmm. uh and and what it caused me to do here was look at the and the and by the way as you're walking down the aisles those price tags were at the very end of the bed on the aisle so you actually looked at the price tag before you even looked at the bed where we ended yep. up purchasing 
the prices were uh, they were they were there, but they were all under a flap. You had to lift a flap to see what the price of the mattress was. And uh, mm-hmm. above the flap was the description of the mattress. And it was mm-hmm. interesting because we sort of fell in love with a particular mattress and we had no idea what the price of that mattress was at the time. Uh, and mm-hmm. then afterwards found out it was significantly higher than we thought we were going to spend. And we bought it anyway because mm-hmm. uh, the the price point at that point didn't our, our emotion was so engaged into that particular mattress, my emotion said to my logical brain, "Hey, come up with a story." Okay, here's a story. You're on the road a lot. You sleep in hotels. If there's ever time mm-hmm. to blow the budget, this is the time it's on a mattress. And my emotion literally commanded my rational brain to buy the mattress. Am I right exactly. in that assessment? You're. It's per is a perfect example, Jeff. That's a perfect example how the emotional brain overpowered the rational brain, and then you come up with a justification and to justify the emotional purchase. We're just about out of time, but I want to talk about fear here um, and about how fear uh, changes our perceptions and and again, how fear causes us to act unnatural, irrationally. We talked about this right at the very beginning when we opened the conversation about hoarding. Uh, mm-hmm. You cited in uh, one in something that you wrote a study from the University of Virginia about people mm-hmm. with a fear of heights. Can you chat about that a little bit? Sure. Um, it's a really interesting study. You know, the, here's the gist of it. You ask two groups of people. The first group of people, they they don't have fear of heights. The second group, group of people, they do have fear of heights. So you put you you have them stand on the second uh, story of the a building. So you ask them to estimate the distance between the bottom of the balcony to the ground. So what they found out was people who do not have fears of height, they come up with an estimate. And then for the group, the group second group of people, people who do have fear of heights, the distance is much larger than the people who do not have fears of height. When we're in a heightened emotional state, we tend to overreact, overestimate the threat and danger. So this is kind of a similar has some similarity to the to the kind of an electric shock study I, I just cited you know one percent versus ninety nine percent when their estimate our, our estimates are influenced under their emotion they tend to overestimate you know with fear they over, tend to overestimate overreact to the to the threat. It's interesting because when when you look at consumer behavior we could see that happening a lot too right if if I am even as I'm thinking about making a decision and there's a lot of fear that of making that wrong choice, then I could end mm-hmm. up catastrophizing what goes wrong if I go through with this. Yes. Um, you know, Jeff, you know, we talk about how emotion can influence our decisions. When it comes down to it, how does emotion influence our decisions? Emotions create all these unconscious biases. One of the most prominent biases is what we call loss aversion bias. With the loss aversion bias, loss looms larger than gain. So this, right. you know, so what does it mean to our consumer uh, buying decisions? Mm-hmm. That means people are not willing, as willing to take risk as you want them to. Mm-hmm. I mean, when, you, when they want to buy something, you want them to buy something. When you try to sell them something, they don't want to take the risk. They want to avoid the risk. So this is kind of loss aversion bias. You know, with, you know, we're in the, this middle of the can- pandemic, you know, the fear is a, it's a prominent emotion we have. Mm-hmm. And people, you know, with fear lingering in the back of our head, you know, this loss of vision bias may be a more prominent, you know, bias we have, we see in the consumer decision making. Mm-hmm. Maybe, you know, normally it takes maybe 
saying it depends on what you sell. Maybe if it takes normally it takes one week to make the sell, you may have to wait maybe two or three more weeks to make the sale. So people are probably slower in their decision making. Well, and especially if you're sheltering in place and you have a lot more time to do your research, you're going to get a little a little paralysis there with an overabundance of, uh, of information. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Dr. Terry Wu, just such great stuff. Uh, this is really, really helpful and very, very interesting. We'd love to have you back in the future. Uh, you've, you've contributed a great deal. But before we let you go, it's a tradition here on The Buyer's Mind. We're going to put you on the hot seat, get to know you just a little bit. Rapid fire questions, rapid fire answers. You ready? Okay, go for it. Here we go. Your very first job was what? My very first job is my very last job. I was hired by the University of Minnesota um, in 1996, and I ended up working there for 20 years. That was my last job. How about that? There, how about that? Um, yeah. a, an album or artist from your youth that you listen to over and over again? Um, I'm kind of a classical music person. I love yeah. Beethoven. Uh, I, I love, love Beethoven's it. Ninth Symphony. Uh-huh. Uh, that's my kind of a background music all the time. Yeah, good. Uh, the most beautiful place you've ever stood. <sighs> Well, I have to say, you know, I have not traveled extensively. I've never been to some exotic places, but I'm a runner. Mm-hmm. I run marathons. And mm. uh, I think the most beautiful place will be the finish line of the marathon. I love it's it. Like, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, very exhilarating. As somebody who's not much of a runner, I'm going to give you that one. I, I, I'll take your word for it. Um, any book that you read early in life that made a profound impact on your life? Um, I started running about... 11 years ago Mm -hmm. um that really fundamentally changed my life the best book i ever read was by uh this runner and philosopher and writer his name's a uh uh, dr george sheehan Mm -hmm. he wrote this book running and being that's fundamentally changed my life love it great book Uh, yeah a movie you've seen multiple times but when it comes on you still have to watch it die hard number one (laughs) i love it (laughs) And then finally, your first celebrity crush. Oh, my God. That one, I would say uh, Kristen Scott Thomas. She was in The English Patient. I just yeah. thought she's really kind of a very attractive. Her yeah. accent's very exotic, very beautiful, yeah. very classy. Love it, love it, yeah. love it, love it. All right, you're off the hot seat. Terry Wu, thank you so much for being on The Buyer's Mind. That was fantastic. Appreciate you being on the show. Thank you. It was a pleasure, Jeff, Yeah, having me. Yeah. So Murph, uh, just a great conversation with a really, really interesting guy. Did that shed any light uh, to the episode back in high school, the unfortunate episode with the young lady in the hallway? I don't know. You know, lots of memories with that, obviously, uh, and lots of regret. (laughs) But uh, (laughs) your hippocampus is so close to your amygdala and the fact that that emotion is stored there so tightly, um, you know, really brings that whole idea of how it comes back with such clarity. Um, and, and right. so quickly, because I mean, you asked me that I, we had, we didn't rehearse this and instantly mm-hmm. <laughs> that was the memory that came up. Why? Yeah, that's right. Why. Right. Well, and it is interesting uh, that they are closely related, the hippocampus and the amygdala. And as Dr. Wu said, it's just one synapse away. But of course, it's not just one synapse. It's it's that's how close it is. But that network between uh, those two glands is so solid and so well connected. Um, the neural pathways number in the, in, in the millions. So as we're looking at that network and how closely connected it is, you simply cannot 
dismiss those two. What we what we hold in our memory, which dramatically affects our decision making process, and that which we hold in our emotion, which dramatically affects our decision making process, almost puts us at a point where the logical brain has a role but not that much of a role, right? So when we're looking at it, uh, we we do our customers still want facts and figures? Y- yes, they absolutely do. But when we ignore that emotion, that's when we're going to get into a whole lot of trouble. So as we're thinking through this and we're looking for application, we have to ask ourselves the question, uh, what do we do to calm the negative aspect of the emotion and to heighten the positive aspect of the emotion? A lot of this is going to come down to the fact that emotion is adopted. That is, the emotional altitude that you carry is going to be adopted by the customer. If you bring a negative emotion, your customer will carry that. If you bring positive emotion, your customer will carry that. And so we 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 make easier decisions when we are happier, when we are feeling good. Why? Because it releases the positive energy in the brain and it minimizes that fear factor or the catastrophizing that we talked about here. So so I, I want to look at it and encourage you as sales professionals, don't be afraid to have a good time. Don't be afraid to enjoy this process and to let your customers see you enjoy the process. Some of the best experience that I've ever had in my life as a, as a consumer came with salespeople that I just really enjoyed. They looked like they were having fun. They looked like they love what they did. And I buy off on that as a consumer. I think your customers will too. Have some fun with this. I think it's a beautiful way to be able to do it. But then also understand, for your from your customer's perspective, that emotion is deeply seated. So that discovery to figure out what's going on inside their brain and to listen, not just to the words, but to the feelings, to the to what they are trying to show you through their emotional language. If you are in tune to that, you can connect with them on a much, much deeper level. But if you're only keeping this very dry and procedural, you're going to get into problems. This is a great opportunity to make it fun for you and for your customer. It's a great opportunity to change someone's world. Hey, by the way, before we wrap it up, I've got a new book coming out. It's titled Follow Up and Close the Sale. And in it, I'm going to share with you what you need to know for successful follow-up that's going to benefit you throughout your career. If you want to join the interest list for the book, if you want to stay notified on all things related to follow-up and some value extras that we're going to throw your way, just go to jeffshore.com slash sales follow-up and share your email with us. 